Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we are going to talk to Marty Friedland, the author of a new biography of W.P.M. Kennedy, the author of the Constitution of Canada, and the founder of the law school at the University of Toronto. Marty Friedland is University Professor and James M. Torrey Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Toronto. He was the Dean of the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law from 1972 until 1979. He is the author of numerous books on criminal law, the history of law, and judicial independence. He is also the author of a major history of the University of Toronto, which has gone through two editions which means that it's a major success as an institutional history. But today we are discussing his book, Searching for W.P.M. Kennedy, The Biography of Enigma, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2020. Marty, welcome to Witness to Yesterday, and thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. previous uh, Witness to Yesterday podcast, we discussed the life and times of historian Donald Creighton. Today, I'm delighted that we're going to be able to review the life and times of another great Canadian scholar of the 20th century, W.P.M. Kennedy. This is an individual who, through his work, really shaped the way in which we see ourselves, at least from my perspective. But I have to say, he's also someone whose character I found absolutely fascinating. And it struck me, Marty, that he was a social climber, a bit of a fraud at times, uh, a ladies' man, a performer, uh, and also a prodigious scholar. Your title describes him, though, as enigma. What do you mean by this? Well, I, I mean puzzling unknown, mysterious. As you say, he was a first-class scholar, but he was all the other things that you just mentioned. I actually never met him as a law student in the 1950s. I didn't hear much about him. Even when I was dean, he was a relatively unknown character. I got to know him better when I wrote the history of the university and found him to be one of the university's most distinguished and engaging personalities. And of course, I now know him somewhat better having written this book, but he is still an enigma. Well, you describe in the book how you bought Kennedy's Cottage north of Toronto many years ago, and how you found this treasure trove of documents. Can you describe exactly what you found? Well, when we bought the cottage in the early 1980s, it was fully furnished. Kennedy died in 1963, and we bought it from his son, Freer, who rarely used it. There were a great number of books on the shelves and two trunks full of letters and other documents. Like many academics in those years, Kennedy spent four or five months each summer up north. The trunks contained correspondence that he did not need to take back to the city. It was mainly personal correspondence. His son Freer obviously knew about the letters, 
but it was never discussed. Well, to me, it seems like that might have been a bit of a honey trap in the sense of trying to get you to write uh, the biography. His son knew very well that you'd find them. Uh, did you decide right there and then that someday you'd do a biography of Kennedy? I thought about it, but never took any steps towards doing anything except to put the relevant documents from the trunks in the University of Toronto archives. I didn't keep documents relating to the children. I, I didn't feel that it was right to do so. Uh, Kennedy had destroyed all his other papers and I didn't think there was enough primary material to do a biography. Moreover, I was involved in other projects at the time. Then in 2013, Oxford University Press asked me to do an introduction for the republication of Kennedy's 1922 classic, The Constitution of Canada, which I was pleased to do. In doing the introduction, I discovered that there was a substantial quantity of archival material in many archives, almost 100 letters, for example, between Kennedy and Mackenzie King in the National Archives in Ottawa, a surprising amount of correspondence in the Robert Faulkner and Henry Cody presidential papers in the U of T archives, and interesting material in various archives around the world. I decided to do a full biography. I then spent about four years researching and writing the book and new material kept showing up. As the book makes clear, his uh, academic career got off to a rocky start. In fact, Kennedy had to leave two positions due to relationships with his students. Can you tell us a little bit about this? His um, first academic appointment in Canada was at St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia, a Catholic institution. His 10 years in the UK after graduation from university had been spent in doing scholarly work on Tudor ecclesiastical history, some of which was done at an Anglican monastery. He came to Canada in 1913. Kennedy was born in 1879 in Northern Ireland and had grown up a Presbyterian, then became an Anglican while a student at Trinity College Dublin and later converted to Catholicism. He never acknowledged that he was born in Northern Ireland or that his father was a Presbyterian minister. When Kennedy died, all the obituaries said that he was born in Dublin. Kennedy obviously did not want people to know his origins because of the hostility between Protestants and Catholics in Ireland. One of his ancestors, a Presbyterian minister, had been charged with murder during a riot. While at St. Francis Xavier, he had a romantic relationship with one of his students, Sarah Josephine Cameron. He even dedicated a book to her, to SJC. They were going to get married, but her family was against it. This was not just any family. Her great uncle had been the Bishop of Antigonish. Kennedy lost his job. 
As far as I know, he never saw Sarah again. St. Michael's College at the University of Toronto then hired him to teach English literature and history. The archives of St. Francis Xavier disclose that after he came to Toronto, he wrote to the prefect of St. FX asking if they would give him an honorary degree based on his scholarly work. The prefect wrote back saying, I am led to believe that a resolution in favor of granting you an LLD would not carry at a faculty meeting. Kennedy did, however, receive such a degree from Trinity College Dublin in 1919. Now the second so-called affair. He married a book editor in Toronto and they had two children. His wife died in the Spanish flu in 1919. We tend to forget that 50,000 Canadians died of the Spanish flu, often in an agonizing death, and a disproportionate number of them were women in their 20s. The next year, in 1920, Kenny, Kennedy married one of his students, Pauline Simpson. In addition to his teaching at St. Michael's College, he was teaching constitutional history in the history department. The head of history, George Wrong, was so incensed about Kennedy's relationship with one of his students that Kennedy was kicked out of the history department. At about the same time, Kennedy had rejected the Catholic faith and so left St. Michael's College. He tried to find another academic post without success. Fortunately, the Department of Political Economy at the U of T gave him a position teaching constitutional history in their department. So how did a tutor ecclesiastical historian become a constitutionalist? I'll start that one again. How did a Tudor church historian become a constitutionalist? Well, he needed the money. After his children were born during the war, his salary at St. Michael's College wasn't enough to raise a family. And so in addition to work at St. Michael's, he had started teaching English literature at University College and Canadian constitutional history in the history department. He complained to President Faulkner that he was teaching 19 hours a week. Why Canadian constitutional history? In part because there was a similarity between Tudor his history and Canadian history in that in both cases there was a split between Catholics and Protestants and the struggle was to unite the country. He also worked closely with a distinguished constitutional lawyer, Henry Lafroy, who was at the time teaching Canadian constitutional history and was working on a book on Canadian constitutional law. Kennedy spent three years working with him on that project and wrote the lengthy historical introduction to the book. That was Kennedy's entire legal ed education. 
Kennedy had worked with primary documents when he was writing about Tudor ecclesiastic politics. He did the same with respect to the Canadian Constitution. He published a book on primary documents relating to the development of Canada. When Lefroy died in 1919, Kennedy became the leading expert on Canadian constitutional law at the university. Well, in fact, I think that the Constitution of Canada, that book, is a landmark in the intellectual history of the country. Uh, and at the time, it was reviewed by uh, a number of individuals, uh, and it was seen as a brilliant and monumental work even then. Uh, I know that decades later that the great Canadian political scientist Alan Cairns said that Kennedy was, in his words, the most influential constitutional scholar from the early 1920s to the 1940s, mainly based on this book. So in your view, what remains the most laudable features of Kennedy's book? There were a couple of features. One that was that it was written in a dramatic style. It made history come alive. It was also based on a thorough knowledge of the primary sources. But perhaps most importantly, he gave a social and cultural context, context to the events he was describing. And you're right, it was well received. Lord Haldane in England gave it, said, called it a remarkable volume. And Harold Lasky wrote, quote, to say that Dr. Kennedy has written a valuable book is to do him less than justice. He has written what is likely long to remain the standard introduction to the study of the Canadian Constitution. The Star Weekly compared the book to the discovery of insulin. In the second edition of Kennedy's book in uh, 1938, he adds four chapters, including a section on what he determined was the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council's mistaken interpretation of the V&A Act. So can you tell us what uh, were Kennedy's concerns at this time, and what led him to providing advice on the desirability of the government of Canada eventually ending appeals to the Privy Council? In that edition, the second edition, there was a new chapter on the desirability of the abolition of appeals to the Privy Council. He was very critical of the Privy Council's decisions in the New Deal cases and wanted the federal government to have more power to deal with matters that needed national attention. In the first edition of his book, he had thought the Privy Council had been doing a fairly good job in interpreting the Constitution. He changed his mind, though, in the 1930s on the usefulness of the Privy Council. It's not well known how crucial Kennedy was in bringing about the abolition of appeals to the Privy Council. He helped prepare the legislation on the topic introduced by a conservative former Minister of Justice as a private member's bill and then worked with Prime Minister Mackenzie King and Justice Minister Ernest LaPointe in having the government take over the legislation in the House. 
There's also a chapter in that second edition, a new chapter, dealing with administrative law. Kennedy recognized the increasing importance of administrative law and promoted scholarship in the area as well as courses for students in sub such subjects as labor law, municipal law, and taxation. And he promoted empirical study of how the tribunals operated. He was far ahead of his time. There was also a new chapter on nationality and citizenship. Kennedy had produced a thorough report for the federal government on the subject in the early 1930s, part of which was implemented by legislation. One of the problems he tackled was that married women took on the nationality of their husbands and lost their nationality when the husband ceased to be a Canadian. Legislation was introduced dealing with that issue, but the broader issue of citizenship would have to wait until after the war. Well, I was also quite curious about his work as a government advisor. What was the nature of his involvement with the Royal Commission on Dominion Provincial Relations, for example? And can you find any other examples of advisory work where Kennedy perhaps had more impact? Well, there were a couple of other important examples. At the end of the 1930s, he was very involved in the Royal Commission on Federal Provincial Relations headed by the Chief Justice of Ontario, Newton Rowell, a good friend of Kennedy. Kennedy wrote four major papers on the constitutions of four federal countries, the United States, Australia, Switzerland, and Argentina. He spent about six months, almost full time, on the project building the federal government a sum that was greater than his annual salary. His reports covered taxation, welfare legislation, labor legislation, and treaty-making power. In the end, the commission didn't make much use of, of his reports. In part, this was because Kennedy's champion, Chief Justice Rowell, died, and Joseph Sirwa became the chair hence the name Raoul Sirwa Report. Sirwa was more interested in fiscal and economic issues than Raoul had been. If Raoul had remained chair, it is possible that Kennedy's studies would have had a greater impact. I believe that the most important government work that Kennedy participated in was the series of federal provincial conferences in 1950, the year after he retired from the university. He was asked by Ontario Premier Leslie Frost to assist uh, the Ontario government in the conferences. Kennedy was the only member of the delegation who was not a cabinet member or a civil servant. There were three conferences in Ottawa that year. Kennedy attended all of them. The most important conference was the third one where the provinces and the federal government agreed upon a number of issues which were turning points in the history of federal-provincial relations. They agreed at that meeting that the federal government would have 
direct taxing power, income tax, that would be shared with the provinces. Canada had not been given, had not been given direct taxing power in the British North America Act, although they had been given that power temporarily during the Second World War. As a result of the conference, the provinces were given indirect taxing power, such as the HST, which formerly they did not have. This federal taxing and spending power has been enormously important in the federal gov government's arsenal, as we see today during the pandemic and in the fight over health care costs. The conference also approved giving the federal government control over pensions for seniors and worked out the equalization process that we use today. That's why I say that Kennedy's involvement in these 1950 conferences were his most important contribution as a government advisor. It also caused him to change his view about the proper balance between the power of the provinces and the federal government. Earlier, I had stated that he had strongly criticized the Privy Council in limiting the federal power. After his involvement in the 1950 federal conferences, Kennedy believed that the balance was now about right. However, he never published these views. I learned of them through a 1983 oral history by his son, Gilbert, who became a law teacher in British Columbia and then the Deputy Minister of Justice in the province. In the book, you describe Kennedy's claim to, in terms of his involvement in the drafting of the Irish Constitution in the 1920s, and you describe this as an exaggerated claim. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Well, Kennedy wasn't somewhat involved in the 1922 Irish Constitution. The committee drafting the Constitution asked for one of his books, and there is some minor correspondence with him, with at least one member of the committee. But he was never an official advisor, as many in Canada thought he was, and as he later claimed to be and perhaps believed to be. He's not mentioned in any of the biographies or memoirs of those who were intimately involved in the Constitution or in any of the published accounts of the drafting of the Constitution, nor is he mentioned in any of the official papers, according to my correspondence with several persons who wrote doctoral dissertations on the 1922 Constitution. There was, however, another Kennedy who played a key role in the drafting of the Constitution, the Attorney General of Ireland, Hugh Kennedy. Persons who heard Kennedy talk about the Constitution must have assumed that the official advisor was W.P.M. Kennedy. He was not. In the early, early years, he did not personally make such a claim, although he did not refute others who wrote about the, his involvement. He gave a talk on the Irish Constitution in 1924 
to a packed convocation hall, which was also broadcast on the Toronto Star's radio station. He didn't say at that talk that he helped draft the Constitution, although newspapers later reported uh, th that, that he was. In later years, however, Kennedy claimed greater involvement than was warranted. In a review of a book on the Irish Constitution in 1934, he wrote, quote, as the present reviewer helped to draft the Constitution, and as he knows intimately, if in the eternal confidences, much of its creation, etc., you will not be surprised to know that George Ron complained to President Faulkner about Kennedy's claim. So how did someone without a single law class in his background establish law studies uh, at the University of Toronto and then become Dean of the School of Law at the University of Toronto? That's a long story. I'll try to make it short. I mentioned earlier that Kennedy had been kicked out of the history department in the early 20s and was taken in by political economy, where he continued to teach constitutional history. But in 1926, George Wrong, the head of history, was able to convince the chair of the Department of Political Economy that history should have exclusive jurisdiction over the teaching of constitutional history and constitutional law. And Wrong certainly didn't want Kennedy to be one, the one to teach it. Kennedy tried to find another teaching position. Again, political economy came to the rescue. They would set up a new program in the fall of 1926 on legal and political institutions that later morphed into an honor law program, which then became a separate department in arts and science, and still later a separate division in the university unconnected with arts and science. In 1943, Kennedy took on the title of Dean. So it was a matter of desperation and determination. The two Ds. So he was described as a great teacher by many of his notable students. Tell us about that lecture style. Unfortunately, I never heard him lecture. Former students would describe his dramatic, sparkling style. Noted lawyer J.J. Robinette was a student of his in the 1920s and later recalled, quote, Kennedy was one of those brilliant Irishmen who could dazzle you, a performer as much as a teacher. I have in the book a quotation from a named lecture he gave at Cornell University in 1927 on the Irish Constitution. So here is Kennedy describing President William Cosgrave, the president of Ireland, taking his seat in 1923 at the League of Nations. Kennedy stated, quote, I'm sure I can't do justice to this. The scene shifts to the Hall of the League of Nations on September the 10th, 
1923. The president of the league has introduced a new delegate. There he stands, his hair prematurely gray, his cheeks sunk with suffering, his eyes deep with sorrow, his shoulders bent with burdens, ringing cheers greet him. They grow in volume and sound. Now they sink to the deep undertone of joy. Now they swell the wild crescendo of enthusiasm. There he stands. And Kennedy continues in a similar vein. So it's dramatic and quite unique. Some of his lectures and books read like novels. President Claude Bissell states in his memoirs that when he was a student, his classmates were enthusiastic about Kennedy, quote, whose powers of memory and exposition students spoke with awe. Marty, given your background, uh, your legal training, and your time as a dean at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, you're in the best position to tell us what Kennedy's legacy really was in terms of legal education and scholarship in Canada. Kennedy, as I've said, had adopted a multidisciplinary and empirical approach to law, which remained somewhat dormant at the university under his replacement Caesar Wright, but is now a dominant part of the philosophy, teaching, and research at the University of Toronto and many other law schools. It also is reflected in the University of Toronto Law Journal, which he founded in 1935. That journal is still one of the leading, if not the top, law journal in Canada. So Kennedy's greatest legacy was his multidisciplinary approach to the law, which was unique in Canada at the time. Kennedy also stressed the importance of a strong graduate program, which was again not a high priority during Caesar Wright's reign as dean, but it is to today. Moreover, Kennedy's own scholarship was at least equal to major scholars at leading institutions today. The quality and breadth of the scholarship from his tutor ecclesiastic writing in his early years to his classic texts on Canadian constitutional law, to later books on various aspects of the law is almost unparalleled. The present school of law, I believe, owes a debt to Kennedy, at least as great as it does to Caesar Wright. You also describe, uh in some very extensive passages and sections of the book, how Kennedy was plagued with medical problems, including mental problems, as well as debt his whole life. Why was this the case? Well, I was surprised to find in the correspondence in the Cody papers that Kennedy was in substantial debt with moneylenders in the early years of the Depression. His friend, President Cody helped him out with a gift of, of what was about a year's salary to pay off his debts. But the debts continued and Kennedy had to cash in his insurance policies. 
Kennedy was always in debt. One major reason for the debt was medical expenses. Kennedy himself had many medical issues. In his extensive correspondence with Presidents Faulkner and Cody, medical issues are constantly measuring, mentioned, covering almost every part of his body, eyes, ears, heart, intestines, with bouts of rheumatism, depression, and insomnia. So, of course, in those days, there was, of course, no medical health insurance available through the government or the university. And in a letter to President Cody in 1937, he wrote, quote, as you know, the doctor is back in our home once more, and I must do my utmost to earn all that I can. I mentioned earlier that Kennedy's first wife died during the Spanish flu. His son and daughter recovered from the flu, but each later had serious medical problems. His elder son, Gilbert, had his spleen removed and suffered from epilepsy and osteoporosis. His elder daughter, Beatrice, has serious mental problems for which she was institutionalized for over 10 years. As to his mental condition, I'm not an expert. So I asked the distinguished psychiatrist, Dr. Mary Seaman, to read the draft manuscript and give her views. She replied, and this is in the book, quote, he may have no psychiatric condition per se, but a personality disorder. It sounds like hypomania, a not infrequent accompaniment of people who get a lot done, who don't need much sleep, who win over other people, inspire others, and generally insist on things going their way, end of quote. That certainly describes WPM Kennedy. Well, Marty, this is a wonderful biography, and I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to have been asked. My guest today was Martin L. Friedland. He is the author of Searching for W.P.M. Kennedy, the biography of Enigma, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on December 11th, 2020, 
in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.